Please remain standing. We'll be reading God's Word. We're reading Colossians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 1. Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. Colossians will be looking at verses 9 to 18. And then our text this morning will be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. So let's turn now to the book of Colossians. Let's hear now God's word. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and longsuffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Turn out to Ephesians chapter 1, our text this morning, verses 15 to 23. As we begin a series that I preached at Reformation on the Church of Christ. And we're looking this morning at the Church of Christ and the head of the church as Jesus Christ, the only head and king of the church. So beginning at verse 15. Therefore, I, Paul, also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated as we pray. 
Oh, gracious God and Father, we lift our hearts up to you this morning. And we give you thanks and glory and praise and adoration. For you are the God who has sent your Son, Jesus, into the world for our salvation. And you are the one who, having sent him, has demonstrated your love for us in him. How we thank you, O Lord, that by him you have purchased for us all the blessings of our redemption. And have poured those blessings of redemption out upon us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We ask you this morning that you would help us to know not only Christ, but to know the inheritance that has been purchased for us in Christ, to know the present possession that we have in Him, and knowing what we have in Him, that we might be enabled by your grace to live our lives in this world unto Him, for Him, through Him, by Him, in our union with our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. As I mentioned, I began a series some weeks ago on the Church of Christ, and the series was something that I hadn't planned on doing. I planned to simply continue in my series in the books of Genesis in the morning and the books of Revelation, the book of Revelation in the evening. But the elders of our church asked me if I would consider preaching a series on the church because we were entering into a period in which we would be nominating officers and uh, going through officer training and eventually coming to that point in time when the members of the church would elect officers, men to shepherd them, men to lead them, and they would exercise the privilege and the responsibility of the office of believer in electing officers for themselves. And not only that, but the congregation would be encouraged and exhorted to understand what it means. What it means to exercise that privilege and that responsibility. What it means to be a part of what Christ is doing as he raises up men in the church to shepherd the flock, not to men, but to Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that the elders wanted me to do was to help God's people to see that we get to participate in what he is doing in history in his church. What a blessing it is to participate in what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing. Not that we would select the men that we would want to rule over us, but rather that we would identify, that we would seek by the grace of God to discern and to identify who it is that Christ is calling, that Christ is equipping, and that Christ is preparing for leadership in the church. In order to do that, we need to understand something about the church itself. And so the elders asked me to preach a series on the Church of Christ. And I thought the best place to begin would be to begin in the book of Ephesians, because the book of Ephesians sets forth a biblical ecclesiology, which is simply a way of saying a doctrine of the church. The book of Ephesians is a biblical doc it gives us the biblical doctrine, the biblical teaching on Christ and his church. And you see that so clearly in chapter 5, don't you? Where you see the relationship between Christ and his 
church compared to the marriage relationship, the, the relationship between a husband and his bride. And you see that close connection between the two. Christ and his church cannot be separated. Christ and his church cannot be separated. The church is his body. The church is his bride. Just as a head cannot be separated from the body, and just as a bride cannot be separated or ought not to be separated from her husband, the church cannot be separated from its head and husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say that we can't have a proper understanding of the gospel without having a proper understanding of the church. Now, this may sound a little bit controversial to you, but Stuart Robertson, Robinson in the 19th century wrote a book with the title, The Church of Christ as an Essential Element of the Gospel. The Church of Christ as an Essential Element of the Gospel. The Church is the Church of Christ. The Church is the Church for whom Christ laid down His life. The Church is that body which Christ has purchased with His own blood. And you see, if you begin to think about the church in that way, and I'm talking about the visible church. I'm not just talking about the invisible church. As I go through the series, we'll see how the two are really connected and they're just two different aspects of the same thing. We'll see that as we go forward in the series in in months to come. But the church cannot be separated from Christ because Christ and his church are one. That's the main point this morning. Christ is building his church. You see, that's what Christ is doing right now. He asks the question, what is Christ doing right now? What is Christ doing in heaven? Is he doing nothing or is he doing something? Well, he's doing something, and what he's doing is he's building his church. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Christ is building his church, and the church itself, if you rightly understand what the church is, The church is the outworking, or the fruit, you might say, of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. The church is the outworking, the fruit of what Christ has done in history. And Christ continues to work. Christ continues to build by his spirit as he pours out his spirit upon whom? Upon his church. So you see the importance of this doctrine. And so what we're going to see, and we're going to see just a part of it this morning, and I'll come back again to the same passage next time that I come, we'll be considering these things carefully from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. And, and we really want to see two things this morning. We want to see, first of all, the centrality of the church in the purposes of God. The Bible teaches that God is doing all things that he's doing in history, in the universe, Everything that's happening around us is happening for the church. The centrality of the church in the purposes of God. We also hope to see what it means for us as we seek to live in thankful response to God, in our our union with Christ. In other words, we've been brought into this. We've been brought into the purposes of God in history. We've been brought into what God is doing. How thankful we ought to be and how we ought to live our lives in response to him. And so two things this morning. First, we want to see Christ's headship over his church. And then second, 
We want to look at our union with Christ, our head. Christ's headship and our union with our head. Let's look first at Christ's headship over his church. And the first thing that we want to see is the basis of Christ's headship. And the basis of Christ's headship, or the, the ground, you might say, of his headship. Why is it that Christ is called the head? How is it that, that this man, the God-man Jesus Christ, is the head of the church? How is that? Well, the basis is his work as Redeemer. The basis of Christ's headship is his humiliation and his work as Redeemer. You see, his exaltation, the basis for that is in his humiliation, his work as our Redeemer. This passage, Ephesians chapter 1, the verses that we've read, and then also Colossians chapter 1, the verses that we read earlier, these two passages set forth Christ as the exalted King of creation. Now you remember what happened in the beginning. God created a man, Adam. And he created a woman, Eve, out of Adam's side. And he gave them the dominion over all creation. And when sin came, and when man fell, what happened? Was it just man who fell? It was the whole creation. Everything. So that when you come to Romans chapter 8, and you read that the whole creation, even now, is groaning even now is groaning under the curse, you realize that we as believers also are affected by this groaning. And what we find is that Jesus Christ is the new Adam, the one who has been set in all authority and power and dominion and glory over the creation. He is the ruler of all things. He is the exalted king of all creation. And what Paul wants the Ephesians to know is this. He wants the Ephesians to know that they are in Christ. That Christ is the head and king, the glorious ruler of all creation, and that they are in him. And what does it mean to be in Christ? It means to be united to him in all his power and all his glory. It means to be united to the one who has control over all things. As we were leaving to come up here this morning, I realized I had forgotten to check the traffic in the tunnel. And that's something you always have to do. And I looked at my phone and I saw a line of red right there in the tunnel. And so I began to have these feelings. You know those feelings that come when you realize you're about to be late for something important. And as a father with young children, you know how long it takes to get all of the family into the car. Everybody's buckled up. And all of these things are, are happening. And as those feelings come, of course, you begin to act on those feelings. And you say things. And you speak in ways that you would not hope that you would speak. Well, what did I fail to realize this morning? As May and I were speaking about it as we drove up, I failed to realize... Christ is on the throne. He's the king. He's the one who caused that traffic to be in the tunnel. He's the one who showed me the red line. And he's the one who called me to respond in a right way to that. And I failed. As we're driving along, I realize that's the failure. 
The failure is a failure to remember that Jesus Christ is on the throne. And as we came to the end of the tunnel, what happened? Well, everything changed. The map changed. Everything changed. And suddenly we had 10 minutes that we didn't think that we had. And we got here on time. Christ is in control. And Paul wants the Ephesians to know that Christ is in control, to know that Christ is on the throne. He wants them to know what it means to be in Christ. You see, that's what this whole section and and the verses before this section are all about. His purpose in the book is both doxological and practical. Do you know what I mean when I say doxological? I mean having to do with praise and worship. You see, Paul can't help but give all of this lofty theology in the context of praise and worship to God. As he as he contemplates what God has done in the person and work of Jesus Christ, he bursts forth into doxology. He bursts forth into praise. Every word is pulsating with praise from a heart overflowing with joy and gratitude and thanksgiving. And every word is calculated to produce confidence and wonder and gratitude. Every word is meant to move us to persevering faith and hope and love. You see, that's how it's practical. Paul always puts the doctrinal and the theological together with the practical. And the practical is how do we live our lives in this world because Christ is on the throne? The book of Ephesians is doxological and practical. Paul wants the Ephesians and he wants you and me to see Christ in all his beauty, in all his glory as the exalted king. And in seeing him, then to live in service to him as king. Seeing who Christ is, to live out of all that Christ is for them and, and at work in them. You see, Christ is exalted, he's on the throne, but he's not just up there and out there. He's in here. He's at work in the hearts of his people. He's reigning in the hearts of His people. He's subduing sin in you. If you are in Christ, you have a King who is subduing sin and the flesh and the works of the flesh in you. He's that powerful. So often I'll say to parents, because I've had to say it so often to myself, that in parenting and in pastoring, this is true as well, You cannot change the hearts of your children. They cannot change their own hearts. God alone can change the heart. And he does does so through his son and by his spirit. And you see, Paul wants the Ephesians to see, see who Christ is and to see what Christ is doing for them right now and to live out of who Christ is and what he's doing for them. And this is what Paul is doing in verses 3 to 14 before we even get to the passage before us this morning. He's laying this deep theological foundation. And what's the foundation? If you see, if you, if you read through those verses, you're going to see that the foundation is the, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three persons are mentioned there in those verses. And all three persons are working together for our salvation. The foundation is the Trinity and the grace of our redemption in Christ and our blessed union with Him by the Holy Spirit. And the Ephesians need to know that they are united to Christ. And being united to Christ, verse 3, 
They are blessed, are presently blessed. Not will be blessed, but are presently blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, do you believe that? And do you live your life as if right now you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, with everything that you need to live your life for Christ, to live your life out of Christ, to live your life according to the word of Christ. Well, that's what Paul is wanting for the Ephesians. He's wanting them to understand that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and set apart as holy, verse 3. He's wanting them to understand that they are predestined to the adoption of children of of, of the the adoption of the children of God, that they are right now partakers of the life and the love and the fellowship of God himself. That's verses 4 to 5. And then not only that, but they are blessed with the blessings of redemption, of forgiveness, of eternal life in him. Do you know what it means to have eternal life? It means to have Christ. It means to have Christ and all the blessings of the redemption that were purchased for you by Christ. It means to have the forgiveness of your sins so that having the forgiveness of your sins, you can have fellowship with the Holy God and not be consumed by His holiness. That's what it means. It means to be a child of God, adopted into the family and household of God and to have a right to all the privileges of the sons of the living God. And then finally, Paul wants the Ephesians to see that all of this has been sealed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who has brought them into union with himself, verses 13 to 14. So the basis of Christ's headship is his work as Redeemer. And then he brings us into fellowship with himself and union with himself on the basis of that work. What's the outworking of Christ's headship? Well, the outworking of Christ's headship is our enjoyment of our union with him. And this is the focus of Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in verses 15 to 23. Look with me there at verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in Jesus, uh, in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you, in my prayers. Whenever you see the word therefore, you, you want to understand why it's there, or what is the therefore, therefore, sometimes said. What's the word there for? Well, it connects the prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesian saints with everything that he has just said in verses 3 to 14. Knowing who Christ is, knowing what he's done, knowing what the the Trinity is doing in the life of the believer and in the church itself, they can then know the blessedness of their union with Jesus Christ, their oneness with Christ, their head, their king. He wants them to know this blessedness not only doctrinally, but experientially. You see, it's one thing to to know the truth with my mind. It's another thing to know the truth with my mind in such a way that it actually affects the way that I begin to live because it has taken deep root in my heart. 
And, I, and I'm beginning to live in light of the truth because the, the truth is shaping my affections and my desires and my longings. And I'm longing for Christ. And I'm longing for his kingdom. And I'm longing to be with him in glory. And so I'm longing to live a life that's pleasing and glorifying to him right now in this life. He wants them to know the blessedness of their union with Christ. He's heard of their faith. Paul's heard of the, the faith of the Ephesians. And their faith is so evident, it's gotten back to Paul in prison. That's how evident the faith of the Ephesian church was. But Paul doesn't want them to grow complacent. He doesn't want them to grow presumptuous. He doesn't want them to grow negligent. He's being a good pastor here, isn't he? Because a pastor, and, and you fathers know this as well, you don't want your children, you don't want your spiritual children, if you're a pastor, an elder in the church, you don't want your children, those who, uh, those who you are called to lead spiritually to Christ, you don't, you don't want them to go backwards in the faith. You want them to grow in the faith. You want them to mature in the faith. And this is what Paul wants for the Ephesian church. He wants them to press on in their union with Christ. He wants them to grow in maturity. And as he says elsewhere, he wants Christ to be formed in them. It's not that Christ is not in them. Christ is in them. But he wants Christ to be formed more and more in them so that they begin more and more to live out of their union with Jesus Christ. And so he invites them into the content of his prayer for them. Paul's prayer is rooted in thankfulness to God for Christ and for his work in them. That's verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He's giving thanks to God for the Ephesians and for what he sees of God at work in them. Do you ever do that? Do you ever look around the church and you see the work of God in another in the church? And perhaps it's someone who is hasn't been a Christian for a long time, or, or perhaps it's someone who has struggled with some sin that you know about, and you see the work of God. You see God at work in their heart and in their life, and you see fruit, and you see that this can only be God at work in them. And you give thanks to God for that, don't you? Or parents, you give thanks to God. You see even, even the smallest glimpse of the fruit of Christ at work in them. You give thanks to God for the work of God in the hearts of your children. Well, Paul gives thanks to God for the work of Christ in the hearts of the Ephesians. And you see, his affection for the Ephesians is evident here as well. It's a deep, fervent, evident affection. It's, it's, it's the heart of a pastor that he's, that he's showing here for the Ephesians. I, I give thanks to you, I give thanks to God for you. I don't cease giving thanks to God for you. I, I make mention of you in my prayers. He tells them that he's praying for them. He wants them to know his affection, his love for them in Jesus Christ. And his love for them is manifested in his prayerfulness. This is one, thing, one of the things I love so much about uh, this church in particular is the love for prayer that I see here. I get the emails I get the, the group me messages, and I see a love for, for one another that's manifested in a love 
for prayer and a desire to pray for one another in the church. Well, that's what Paul is doing here. He, he's not distant. He's not cold. He knows that the church is the family and household of God, and he wants to show a, a brotherly and, in his case, a fatherly kind of love and affection for those in the church. He loves the Ephesians. He loves them so much that he has to show his love. There's an affection here. There's a real affection. Oftentimes in the Bible, we are told to show affection. Christians are not to be Stoics. You know what Stoicism is? Stoicism is a pagan philosophy, though. Sometimes there's uh, an attempt to kind of bring it over and Christianize it. And it's the idea that, that in order to live your life in this world, you can't be affected in any way by anything that happens. You have to be like, like you've got to have this heart of stone about everything. You can't be affected because for your emotions to be moved by anything or anyone, something else has control over you. And therefore, you live your life as a stone. And so you're like the airplane pilot, you know. This is good in airplane pilots in a certain sense. The airplane pilot, things are going wrong, everything's going wrong, the, the plane is going down, and it's as if nothing's happened. Now, in an airplane pilot, you want to see that. You want him to be calm at that particular moment. But this is not the Christian life, a life of stoicism. This is one of the reasons why, during the last year, when we were told that no outward display of affection at all was good. In fact, to display any outward signs of affection would, would you might be in danger of, of killing someone if you showed some sort of outward sign of affection. And I understood why we had gotten to that place. But I also knew that it couldn't last forever. We couldn't live like that. Because we are called by God to show affection for those who are in Christ, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Different people show that differently, I understand. But we must show affection. And this is what Paul does. He doesn't believe that God's work is finished in them yet. He wants them to grow. He, he, he wants them to grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding that they might know Christ better. That's what the elders here at RPC want for you. We want you to grow in the knowledge of Christ. He... He wants them to know the hope of their calling as the saints of God. That's verse 18. He wants them to know the infinite riches of their inheritance in Christ. They already possess in Christ an infinite inheritance. And you see, if you really begin to live your life as if that's true, if you really begin to believe that, and to understand that what you possess in Christ is of greater value than everything that you might possess in this world, when you begin to believe that, then your life begins to be transformed and changed and renewed. He wants them to know what they presently have. The present possession of the believer is so far beyond our imagination and our comprehension that as we begin to reflect on it, as we begin to consider it, we begin to see that everything that we need, we already in Christ. That's what Paul wants the Ephesians to know. And he wants them to know the power of Christ's resurrection in their hearts and in their lives. That's verse 19. 
What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, verse 20, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the power at work in you, if you are in Jesus Christ, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that means that you have everything that you need to live your life in Christ and out of Christ and for Christ by the grace of Christ. Now that should encourage our hearts this morning. I often will say to covenant children, especially those who think that they need to have some sort of dramatic conversion experience in order to validate the fact that they are in Christ, I say, no, that's not true. I don't want you to have the kind of dramatic conversion experience that I had. I want you to know the power of Christ at work in the heart and life of a covenant child, keeping them from the seductions of this world. That mighty power, that same power that raised Jesus up from the dead, enabling you to continue to live in the covenant by the grace of God in such a way that you that you never know the depths of sin that others in the church may have known, you see. And it's that power that's able to do that. It's that power that's able to keep us and to guard us and to transform us and to renew us. The fruit of Christ's headship is that we are praying these things for ourselves, for our families, and for one another. That we would grow in the knowledge of Christ. That we would grow in our experience of Christ's Lordship over our lives, that we would grow in knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Well, secondly, we want to see our union with Christ in our head. And Paul's prayer teaches us what it means for us to be in union with Christ. What does it mean for you and me to be united to Christ, to be in Christ, as Paul says? Paul uses that phrase, I think, 12 times in Ephesians chapter 1. What does it mean for us to be united to the one who has been given all power and all authority in the universe? What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? It means, as Paul tells the Ephesians, it means what we see already back in verse 11. In him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works some things according to his count, to the counsel of this will. No. According to the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, you are united in Christ to the one who is working all things out according to the counsel of his will. The one who is able to control even the traffic in the tunnel far more. The one who is able to control and to work out all the details of your life and my life in such a way that he is glorified even in my failures. That he is glorified even through my sin. He receives all the glory as he turns me again and again and again to himself. Because only only he can do that. 
I've shared this with my own congregation down in Virginia Beach. But as you begin to look at what Christ is doing in history, as you take a long view, as you take a big picture view, you see his power and his glory more and more. I think of the way that May and I met each other. And as you look back in history, as you look back in the history of her family, you realize that it's only because May's grandfather, who was a missionary in Brazil, was murdered by land invaders. It's only because that happened that her grandmother then moved up to Texas, and then her grandmother had Alzheimer's, and so May moved there to Texas from Brazil to take care of her grandmother when she remarried. And then and then you see how God, in his providence, at his time, brought me to the very same area, and we ended up in the same tiny little OPC church with 20 people, a church where you'd say, well, I'm, I'll never find anybody here. And in an evening service, we met. And, and he's, uh, it's just astonishing when you begin to understand what God is doing in the events of history. And you see even, even the bad things, the things that from a human perspective are, are bad things, we realize he's doing it all for his glory. And he's got a bigger purpose, a purpose that's way bigger than me, way bigger than this congregation, and way bigger than even we can imagine. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to know this. He wants the Ephesians to know Christ. He wants them to know Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And to know Him as the exalted, reigning God-man. The one who was dead and is now alive. The one who has the keys and the power over death and the grave. To know Him as the one who is above all earthly power. The ruler of the kings of the earth is what He's called in the book of Revelation. You ever get worried about what's going on in the world around you? Remember this. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And if he's the ruler of the kings of the earth, then he's the ruler of the presidents and the prime ministers and the congressmen and and everyone, the Supreme Court justices. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And to him belongs all dominion and might and power. Do we act as if we really believe that? Or do we act as if Things are spinning out of control because they're not going according to our plan and our thinking. Paul wants the Ephesians to know Christ as the one whose name is above every other name. Is there a name in this world that you fear? Our congregation is a little bit bigger and sometimes we have visitors and I don't don't know everybody as well. And so I don't necessarily know who I'm speaking to on any given occasion. But I, I asked the question when I preached the sermon in Virginia Beach. I asked the question, is there a name that you fear? And I asked the question, perhaps there is someone in the congregation, perhaps a wife, who fears her husband. We should fear God. We should fear God. And if we fear God, then our fear of God will cause us to live in this world as if God is really in control, even when it feels like God is not in control. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
And this knowledge gives us great boldness. It gives us boldness in prayer. It gives us boldness that God will hear us through His Son and, and the promises of the Holy Spirit. It gives us boldness in living the Christian life. We feel powerless. But we have Christ. We're in Christ. We know Christ. Christ is our Christ. He's, he's united to us. And not only is He out there ruling the universe, but He's in here at work in my heart. We have boldness in living the Christian life. This knowledge also teaches us how to exercise authority. Because if we're given authority in this world, we're giving we're given that authority from God in order to glorify God, aren't we? I'm thinking of the, the authority that you might have as a parent. Or the authority that you might have in the workplace, or or for those who serve in, in office in the church. You're given authority as a stewardship from God. And, and it teaches us how to exercise authority. Christ is our example, but he's much more than our example. He's our example in his humiliation. How did he live in his humiliation? It teaches us how to humble ourselves and to walk in a way that is pleasing to God in this world, even when we ourselves are under authority, even when we ourselves are oppressed or marginalized as Christ was. He is our head. All authority comes from him. But it also teaches us, his example teaches us, how to exercise authority when we are given authority. He is he has all power. He has all glory. He has all authority. He's reigning right now as the exalted God-man. And so it teaches us how to exercise authority in a Christ-like way. Parents, it teaches you how to shepherd the hearts of your children, doesn't it? You shepherd them by pointing them not to yourself, but by pointing them to Christ. By teaching them that their mother and their father will sin and will fall and will fail, but Christ will never fall, Christ will never fail, and Christ is able to to shepherd them all the way to himself and to glory. Also, those who shepherd the flock of Christ as under-shepherds, not as lords over the flock. That's what you're looking for in a pastor. Do you, know what, do you want to know what you're looking for in a pastor? You're looking for a shepherd. You're looking for someone who will lead you not to himself and not to his ideas and his ways of thinking, but will lead you to Jesus Christ humbly, but will also be firm when he needs to be. Who will lead you to Jesus Christ by pointing you to the Word, and by saying, here's the Word, here's what your life looks like right now. Is your life in conformity to the world, to the Word? I'm just asking you. You judge. You tell me. But I'm pointing you to Christ. And the way that I'm pointing you to Christ is by showing you what Christ has said in His Word. And by speaking to you only according to the word. That's what you're looking for. Paul's prayer drives us to Christ. In dependent, thankful, believing prayer. It's a pattern for our own prayers. It's a pattern not only for our own prayers for ourselves, but our prayers for others. What are we praying for in others? We're praying for growth. We're praying for maturity. We're praying that they might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That they might know Christ crucified and that they might know Christ risen. That they might know a life that is a resurrected life by the power of Christ. 
power and glory and the supremacy of Christ and his power toward us. That there is nothing necessary for your salvation, for your sanctification, and for your glorification that Christ will not do. And that Christ cannot perform. What is his will? This is the will of God. Even your sanctification. Your growth in grace. And so when you pray this prayer, you're praying as God would have you to pray. You're praying... Grow me. Make me more like Christ. Make me more like Christ so I can be a better father, so that I can be a better husband, so that I can be a better wife, a better mother. Grow me. Make me more like Christ so I can be a better pastor, a better elder, a better deacon. Make me more like Christ. You see, to be united to Christ is to be united to the one who conquered death and the grave. And when you start thinking about what that means, that means that every fear that you might have, Christ has overcome that fear. Christ has overcome everything that might come against you in this world. Christ has overcome all the powers and the enemies of the church, and he is building his church. He will continue to build his church, and nothing can stop him from building his church. The very same power that created all things. The power that's at work in you. The power of the resurrection. And that very same power will one day bring about a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. Sometimes I think about I think about the resurrection in this way. But on the day of the resurrection when we are raised up in glory, when Christ comes, the last trumpet sounds, and we go to be with him in the air, it's at that moment when Christ destroys all of his enemies, the enemies of his church, the enemies that have persecuted his church throughout history, have hated him and hated his people. When that moment comes, we are going to see what only the angels saw at the first creation we're going to see a new creation burst forth before our very eyes. Because we're going to be with Christ, the one who is all power and all authority. And we're going to see this new dwelling place, this new temple, this new habitation for God together with his people. We're going to see the place of eternity unfurled and opened up for us. We're going to see all that God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. We don't see it right now with our eyes. But we have the promise of it right here in His Word. That's the power that Jesus Christ has and is working toward you, toward His church. And what's the evidence? The evidence is the cross of Jesus Christ where He defeated death and hell and the devil. But the evidence is also his work in you right now. That's the evidence. If the Lord who rules all things has united himself to you, will he not do all things for you that he has promised to do? Ask yourself that question when you're struggling. 
ask yourself that question when you're wondering why this is happening right now to me. You see, it doesn't matter how weak or strong your faith is. If you have a weak faith, you should want your faith to grow. You should desire growth in that weak faith. But the same power is at work in you right now that's at work in any other believer, the believer with the strongest faith. The same power, because it's the power of Christ, it's not your power. It's not your faith. It's a faith that is worked in you by the power of Jesus Christ. That's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That should encourage our hearts. Every Presbyterian book of church government begins right here. Jesus Christ is the only head and king of his church. And this is because no human power is sufficient to build a church. No pope, no head of state, no queen in England can rule Christ's church. Because no human power can build Christ's church. When I come again next time, we're going to see this. We're going to see that Christ rules the whole universe for the sake of his church. Everything that happens in all creation in the whole universe is part of Christ's plan for his church. And so if we're in Christ, we are predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the power of his glory and of his might. And so then you ask the question, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to this? There's only one way. Breathless, astonished, wonder, praise, thanksgiving, adoration, falling on our faces before God and worshiping Him, not only on the Lord's day, but with our whole lives. As we do so, as He works in us, we begin to see that the One who has promised us that He will be with us to the very end of the age He's the one at work in us, enabling us to joyfully obey every command of our King. Let us pray. O gracious God and Father, we thank you for this blessed union that we now enjoy with our Savior Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have been brought into union with the Head and the King of the whole universe. We thank you, Lord, that this gives us great reason for praise, confidence, boldness in prayer, and joy in our worship. We pray that you would continue to build your church through your Son, Jesus Christ. And that as you build your church, you would enable us to rejoice in what you're doing and to participate in what you're doing as your people. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.